Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Matson, pretty cold. Right? When he's fucking randos, he does noise-canceling headphones. Right? Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the fifth episode of the HBO series Succession, Kill List. Oh, so there is a kill list? Oh, yeah, I have it on good authority. There's a kill list. And later on, Jay Smith Cameron will be stopping by to talk all things Jerry, from being saved from the kill list and that hat at Connor's wedding. But before that, a quick recap. The corporate jet has hopefully been deep cleaned, and we're on a road trip to save the Gojo deal. Anyway, Norway, Sweden, what's the difference? It's all descended from the same rapists. The old guard go head-to-head to fight for their jobs as the takeover looms. Sure, they're young and they're fit, but... They're European. They're soft. Hammocked in their social security safety nets. But Logan's last deal comes into question, as a new demand by Matson pushes the Roy brothers too far. But I, I, I do want ATN, though. Uh, well, no. ATN's off the table. Dad carved it out. Roman and Kendall decide to tank the deal and keep Waystar Royco for themselves. And if you tell the board it's in any of this, I'm just going to say it was a negotiating tactic. And you know what? Maybe it is, but it's not. So fuck you. But ultimately, they fail to destroy the Gojo deal and end up making more money for the shareholders. Hail the conquering heroes. Your dad would be really proud. Wow. You're welcome. Meanwhile, Shiv's pregnancy remains a secret as she shares a moment with Tom and then gets flirty with Matson. Hey. Are you with your brothers? Mm-hmm. Could you send me a photo of their faces? All right, Chris. So my big question for this episode, and I hope you have a, a clarifying answer. <laughs> what is Shiv up to? What is all this flirtation, scheming? I'm just, I, I love what I watched, but I'm just, I want to hear your take on what she's doing. Well, I think this episode 
could be titled How Shiv Got Her Groove Back. <laughs> I mean, right? She is wheeling and dealing. And I <laughs> I don't know if I have a clarifying answer, but I think she's the missing piece that her brothers are sort of ignoring. Right. She has the card. She has all the information. She has the one piece of information that they could use to take down Matson and get what they want, given Matson's sort of penchant for sending young women who are in his employ his own blood, which Shiv got by, like, being flirty and being Shiv. I mean, I don't think she went into that conversation with Madsen with the intent of, I'm going to use my feminine wiles to seduce information out of him. I think she was just genuinely being her intelligent, sharp... Political. Political and funny self. And she charmed the pants off of him, this weirdo guy. And he was clearly not getting along with Roman or Kendall. He doesn't respect them. He pretty much hates them. So Shiv leaps up to be the favorite of the three siblings in Matson's eyes. She gets some really great information by being flirty and playing the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. He offers her drugs. She says, yeah, I'll take some. She doesn't take any, nope, no. which is really important. I was like yeah. worried about the baby. But <laughs> I think she only has a sip of champagne at the very end of the episode. Yes. She allows herself a sip because she has a, a glass of brown liquor in that weird little meeting with Matson, but I don't think she drinks from that I don't either. think she drinks from that either. Yeah. She definitely does not take any of his party favors, but she does end up charming him and getting through to his mm-hmm. weird little brain. And then I think high off that, she's feeling good about herself and flirts with Tom a little bit and has power. She feels powerful again. Yeah, and I think that she noticed what I think we in the audience are supposed to notice is these subtle rebellions, these little grabbings of power that mostly is Kendall, mm-hmm. who is balking quietly, wincing a little bit every time Roman says, well, let's ask Shiv. Or like every time Shiv is kind of going to be included, you can tell that Kendall has gotten a little bit, is getting more and more power. Yes. Man. I think that Shiv recognizing that is just like, even if I'm not officially in charge of anything, and I have been promised, you know, no one's gonna, is going to be like legally held to that. Yeah. She just needs avenues of intelligence, which is, you know, what she got out of Madsen. But also just like she needs a relationship with him for mm. at least the, the near future. And she, I also think, is probably mostly unaware that her brothers are trying to tank the deal. I think she's completely unaware. I think they're yeah. not communicating anymore. And if they did, they could join forces, like the Transformer that we said, and get everything that they wanted. Because right. each of them together has enough information to <laughs> tank Matson and sort of control Waystar Royco. But because Kendall is sort of keeping Shiv on ice... yeah. She smartly doesn't tell them that she has the ace in the hole that Lucas has harassed his yeah. own like coworkers, repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly harassed a current coworker and a former girlfriend. Right. And I guess I, though, question whether or not Shiv wants. I, I think when she says ATN back yeah. in. Fuck. Uh, well, then, yeah, sure. Fine. Get rid of it. It's a toxic asset. Uh, it's also dad's pride and joy. He died trying to keep. Yeah, well, let's just keep one of his old sweaters. Less racist. I think Shiv is happy to be done with it because oh, I think she's like, aren't we still going ahead with the Pierce acquisition? This will give us even more money. I think her little Mona Lisa smile and <laughs> sip of champagne at the end is because Matson texts her and says, take a picture of your brother's faces. I think maybe then is when she's like, oh, they were trying to do a runaround on me and it blew up in their faces. Yeah, and I think she ends the episode in the the best of all the Roy siblings in terms of right. position of power, right? Because she has Matson's ear. Mm-hmm. She also has 
somewhat her brother's confidence. She right. can play both sides in a way that Roman blew up in smoke. And I yeah. honestly blame, and I want to know your theory about this. I think the only reason that Roman erupted in the way that he erupted is because Connor sent that photo of their dad yeah. on the way up. Yeah. If he had not seen their dead dad. Right. Not he, wearing a kilt. Not wearing a kilt. Marsha did not win. No. Um, but if... If Roman had not seen that picture and gotten completely emotionally erratic, he would not have just put all of his cards on the table and said, hey, we fucking hate you, Matson. We're not going to sell to you. Right. And then Matson wouldn't have had the upper hand and gave them an offer that they couldn't refuse. And I think that in addition to concrete knowledge about their potential purchaser slash rival, Shiv also throughout the episode really, in a wonderful way, pops the kind of bubble of these boys just sparring at each other. I mean, she <laughs> says, like, oh, you stags with your memory foam hard-ons. Like, yeah. because these guys are just escalating their one-upsmanship, their barbed insults, you know, um, toward one another. And I guess maybe that's just how these men do business. But I think Shiv, in rolling her eyes at it and taking a completely different tack, which is to be a little deferential to Matson without ceding any of her sort of knowledge, you know, smarts or anything, but just to listen to him. Yeah. And he says, you're not judgmental. And this mercurial Elon Musk guy <laughs> who, you know, as Roman is like, you doing some cool tweets? <laughs> like, uh, you know, he, who's trying to be funny by saying, I'll, uh, I'll buy it for $1. Like, he's, I think, a Musk stand-in at yes, this point in, in the writing of the show. She's like... Yeah, I guess doing the hard charging, like listening to hip hop, like Kendall's doing, like uh, at the beginning of the episode, like that's a strategy, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But what if I actually do bring something negotiating style to the table? And it's not just because she's a woman, it's just because she has a different perspective. A different perspective, a little bit more cunning. And I also think, which is a conversation, I think we've gone back and forth with who is most like Logan, who is most becoming their father. If, is it Kendall? Is it Shiv? And in this episode, Listening to, I think it was Carl's advice. I tell you what, your dad. Now he often he would just start with a joke. Kendall and Roman completely shut him down. They don't listen to him for one second. Shiv goes in sort of like that, and by the end of the conversation, I think the last thing that Lucas says to Shiv is, "You remind me of Logan. It, you right. are a, you're a lot like Logan in a good way." Yeah. And he much preferred sparring with and doing the deal with Logan more so than Roman and Kendall. So I think, I don't know if Shiv was really listening to Carl or if Shiv just by being cunning and just a little bit better at reading people was able to get into Matson's not inner circle, but gain his ear and his trust to some degree yeah. by simply listening to him and being friendly and a little flirty and a little funny. But that was like, that seems like a... <laughs> Maybe not the flirty aspect, but that seems like a page out of Logan's book, and it ended up working for Shiv. Yeah. And by the end, we see that Lucas is like, Shiv, you remind me of Logan, and he tells Roman and Kendall, your dad would be ashamed of you yeah. on yeah. that mountain. You know, and I think that the leading with the joke thing right at the beginning, and, and Shiv is really put off by it, because Matson's disgusting. He's, he's like an awful guy. He's probably worse than all of them, right? He's like, uh, I'm not sure. What do we do here? Uh, am I going to get a lawsuit if I hug you? or Maybe. Want to find out? It's, it's unfortunate she has to put up with that kind of thing. Oh, terrible. But, like, she maneuvers it well. A good reminder that of the three siblings, she's the only one who has worked on the outside. Like, the, yeah. for the most part, Kendall and Roman have been in their dad's company since they were of age, essentially. Shiv did, I don't know how serious it was, but did have a political career outside of this where she had to negotiate a lot of egos mm -hmm. that weren't, you know, were beholden to her father in some way or sort of, you know, impressed by his power. But, like, but she had to strike out on her own a bit more than did her yes. brothers. And 
I wonder if I don't know this episode just I, I wanted to start with Shiv because it felt like a pivotal turning point in the sibling dynamic in a direction that I didn't quite predict. Like, yeah. I thought it was going to be all out war. And now it seems to be a sort of quieter game of, of Thrones, essentially. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mean, I guess maybe Kendall is being a bit more overt in that, like, his eyes are sort of gleaming with this power hunger. Yes. And Roman, again, emotional basket case Roman, yeah. he... To his credit, he wants to keep Shiv in the fold because he wants the siblings to be united. Right. But the minute that Kendall dangles the potential of, like, CE bros forever, he, yeah. he jumps at it. Kendall says, like, oh, you think Pinky is up to it? Like, referring to Shiv. And Roman's like, no, absolutely not. And it's like, okay, so he wants to involve Shiv, but only to a point. Yes, only to a certain point, And he is just as <laughs> bloodthirsty as Kendall. But I do, I want to talk a little bit about masculinity, not mm. even in terms of Jiv and the brothers, but the brothers and Madsen and how unprepared, I was so shocked by how unprepared they were for this negotiation yeah. and how, <laughs> frankly, silly they looked. I mean, Madsen, big dog, even, and it is kind of interesting casting having um, Alexander Skarsgård be so much bigger than both yeah. Jeremy Strong. And he flashes abs at them. Yes, he did. And yeah. I absolutely walked that. That was deliberate. Thank I think. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Succession for that. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that they came in without a counter offer prepared, that they yeah. were so unprepared for Matson to say, I want ATN as well. Also, for smart move on Matson, he told Kendall and Roman to bring everybody, bring the whole gang, and then makes fun of them for bringing the whole gang, right. Right. making them look like they need a bunch of support, and they were shaken by that. I mean, it was just a fumbling, bumbling mess of a negotiation, and I was honestly... Obviously, we've said this a thousand times now. They're not serious people, but I expected them to be a little bit more serious than what we saw, right? Right. Well, Matson is an edgelord shit poster. <laughs> He's Elon Musk again. Yeah. And I think that this episode is in some ways like could be read as an allegory for, a metaphor for real life miscommunications, clashes, tensions in the business world, where all of a sudden Silicon Valley, full of people like Matson, mm-hmm. has to confront or, or or rather Wall Street you know the sort of older model has to confront these new age west coast mm-hmm. freaks yeah so it's <laughs> and, and the Wall Street people are freaks too <laughs> yes. they're just like older evil freaks they're not know, taking mushrooms for breakfast yeah. like Madsen right right and the idea that Jerry gives a good speech on the plane about how oh they're soft and European and we're gonna you know we were raised in hell basically because <laughs> you know we didn't have health care Logan and, raised us right, in hell right like we have a pathogen named Logan Roy and I think some of that is true. I think we see the cracks in Matson's approach uh, throughout the episode as well. But yeah, I think this older business, and they're supposed to be more cutting edge. They're media, mm-hmm. but they're Fox News and they're yeah. newspapers. And and I think that they got caught flat-footed because a lot of people, companies in the real world have. And they've been cowed by tech weirdos and mm-hmm. led astray by them. I mean, look what Hollywood did. They, yeah. Netflix worked, and then a bunch of other people were like, "Digital streaming is the way of the future." And, and now then we get no love is blind on Netflix. Right, right. And, and now, and now all the studios are like, "Wait, we used to make money from our shows. We yeah. used to make money from our movies, and now we just, you know." So the the Pied Pipers of Silicon Valley are just as insidious as the kind of hard charging ones. So I don't know. I think it was an interesting dynamic. Yes, that did have a, a, a certainly a masculinity vibe to it. But I did think that toward the end of the episode, and not just because of the Shiv conversation, but Matson did start to seem desperate. And I wonder, like, there was a kind of, like, flint in his eyes about, like, yeah. oh, I, got, I really want this to go through. It needs to go through. 
I'm curious what that is about. Yeah, what's his end game? And I and why does he really need this acquisition? And is why he trying to hide something? Or yeah, why does he really need ATN? And why yeah. didn't he know about Catch and Kill? I mean, they're like mm-hmm. Shiv lays out like a three point yeah. plan that seems not like the most brilliant thing. It seems sort of pretty duh. Point one might be hard for you, but stop sending people your blood. But Matson seems to be really hearing this for the first time, and like he didn't consider. Shiv's plan in terms of suppressing his horrific misdeeds uh, with Ebba, his employee. I don't know why this Swedish tech overlord wants to have ATN beyond just sticking a knife in Kendall and Roman. And that's what, I mean, Kendall says that at the beginning of the episode, it seems to be a personal thing. By the end of the episode, it definitely seems like it's personal. I don't don't have a really good answer for what why he has that gleam in his eye. I think there's just a panic. There's a sort of... And I my, my theory as we talk is that Matson's company is maybe kind of a house of cards. Maybe the kind mm. of grand tech... Maybe it's meta yeah. in the metaverse. And he's realizing that he has sunk a lot of money into something that never worked, that was just theoretical, yeah. that no one wants. As we see a lot of big tech companies totally. doing these days, just you know chasing these weird rabbits down weird holes and then like forgetting... Like Google... It's not a good search engine anymore. Yeah, we can't. You know? can barely use it these days. Um, and I'm wondering if he sees in Waystar Royco something real and yeah. concrete, actual assets, actual products, and ATN is profitable. He still has the arrogance to tell the Roy kids, no, you don't understand. Your, your ATN isn't valuable. And they're like, you don't understand. It, it actually it is. is. And I believe them. I'm wondering if maybe Matson. Something is about to collapse at his company, and he needs something concrete to hold it up. Well, he keeps calling uh, Waystar Royco a part shop, which mm-hmm. implies that they have the parts, that they have right. things that work and things that he could use right. under the guise of maybe he has the brand and the sleekness and the outward facing, you know, and he also fits the profile of what a CEO looks like right now. Sure. I think that all matters. And if he can take the parts that work and then Ikea the shit out of ATN, <laughs> which <laughs> <Yeah>. was... <laughs> pretty hilarious, then maybe he laughs all the way to the bank. But I don't think this is, I definitely don't think this is the last we'll see of Matson. I definitely don't think that Gojo, I mean, it's so interesting and funny, and you have to give it up to the succession writers. We said, oh, Chekhov's gun, re the Gojo deals, and the Gojo deal won't go through. Actually, what happened was the intentions behind the Gojo deal changed. Everybody wanted it to go through. Then Kendall and Roman, they get a power hungry. They've been CEO for a day and an hour, maybe. And they decide, oh, they want to run the company. And then they're trying to tank it and it blowing up in their face is actually a lot more interesting, I think. And I'll use this word dramaturgically and (laughs) storytelling wise than the Gojo deal just sort of falling apart. I think with Logan gone, the kids now confronting the realities of a very changed business world, of a very ch- changed economy. I know I keep mentioning Silicon Valley, but obviously the Swedish aspect of Matson and Gojo is like it's kind of Spotify. Mm-hmm. But I think that the Roy's in that sort of brown liquor drinking, Park Avenue living, conservative cable network running – they're dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. Even the kids are dinosaurs. And I think that Shiv might be the only one who really sees that. It's a Sell toxic acid. Get rid of get it. Get rid of it. And I don't know. I mean, I also thought there was something, you know, just speaking about the episode more broadly, like, I lo- it did feel like a 
an old succession episode. It yeah. felt like kind of return to form. Uh, I liked what we just had the past two episodes, but this was there was a creepy element to this episode where it was a bit like Midsommar. It was a bit <laughs> like Ex Machina. Yeah. You know, going to this remote <laughs> Scandinavian location that, of course, they were complaining about, but that was like stunningly beautiful. Yes. The rooms are too um, small. Ugh, yeah. This is where I bear shit. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just fitting that the first thing they have to do really outside of their little world after their dad dies is like go to Midsummer, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Where the Swedish people are just kind of like making fun of them in this sort of merry but sinister way at the yes. same time. In Swedish, calling yeah. them. I mean, I heard the words, I don't speak any Swedish if you could imagine, but I did hear what I thought were the words incest and Habsburg. Incest, du är släkt, Två meter ren svågerpolitik. En innehållad Habsburgs jätte. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, it is funny that, like, a cousin pops up, you yeah. know? Like, how many of there are you? <laughs> the points, there were really interesting and good points made um, <laughs> in that little Swedish joking section. I do also want to, like, thinking about the Roy's and sort of the timeline, right, of the show... In terms of we're like not 48 hours after yeah. Logan's death. And clearly Roman, who had pre-grieved and was doing fine, is the one probably taking it the hardest of all siblings, as we see in his big explosion at the top of the mountain. I mean, my sister's kind of, she's fucked up about it, and her brother's a mess, and I'm fucking, I'm gone. I'm like, I'm on the fucking, I'm dead. It's over for me. It's okay. It's fine. But you just drag us out here, you inhuman fucking dog man, you. And now between Shiv last episode, who basically said, we killed him, and then Roman says this episode, you killed him, Madsen. Yeah. If you weren't such a prick, he would be alive. Obviously, Logan's death is no one's specific fault, but who do you think bears the most responsibility? I think now we have, we can clearly see that these siblings each have different ideas as to who is to blame. Well, I mean, no one's to blame. The yes. air the air pressure is to blame. Logan's the compression socks, the lack of compression socks is to the blame. compression socks thing was really funny. That was really because of course Carl and Frank, the two older guys, are like, no, no, we're not taking any chances. <laughs> Absolutely after that. not. I mean, it's a bit like you know closing the barn door after that. But um, I think that what the show did prior to Logan's death, with him having this renewed vigor, where he's like, I'll just walk to the to ATN, and then he comes in and gives this towering speech, and actually he still has some old fire left in him, mm-hmm. and then he's storming off to Sweden to close this you know career making deal. I think the the show's point is that it it wasn't anyone's fault, but mm-hmm. of course the kids are interpreting it in ways that I think is still is so childish and superstitious and like they just can't accept the fact that like, this just happens to people. Yeah. And I wonder how long they're going to carry that sort of guilt or you know trying to pass blame onto people with them. You know, will they still be doing that when the season ends? I don't know, but yeah. They they need to get their head out of the sand and it feels like at the end of this episode Shiv is the only one who's done that. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, psychologically it's interesting to see them process and interpret and try to place blame for uh, something that ha- just happens to people, that there's no one to blame. Right. But in their little world, there's always someone to blame. And so Shiv, you know, she goes, internal Roman, he casts his blame out on Madsen. And I do, we, I've shouted out Sarah Snook and her wonderful performance, you know, basically every episode. This episode, I'm going to give my flowers to Kieran Culkin. He mm. was absolutely fantastic in that breakdown on top of the mountain. You could really finally see 
where his actual emotional state is in light of his father's death. And sort of the, the wall came crumbling down. All of the jokes and the fuck you and fuck off and I'm going to jerk off in front of you, Kendall. Like right. that all was gone. And it was just a boy who misses his dad and blames this asshole for killing him, whether or not he's responsible, which he's not responsible because it's just what happens. But I really think Kieran Culkin did some really fantastic work this episode. I agree. And I also think that it's so interesting watching Roman... I think to some extent, he's not admitting it, certainly, to others or himself, but a little bit like, wait, what did I sign up for? Yeah. Why am I reading these, like, things about Kalispatron? <laughs> yeah. Which, Kalispera, Kalispera is how you say goodnight in Greek. Okay. So I think that's where that, so it's the, the robot's hibernating Oh, sleepy movie. robot, the $225 billion also, did you robot. notice when they screened the film for the very uninterested Swedes, <laughs> there was a screener watermark on the <laughs> Yes, on yes, I did, Property yeah. of Waste Tarweco. That yeah. was a great, tiny a great, little detail. I think they said, like, yeah. it might have had, even had, like, VFX still right, to come. Exactly. And I was like, that's very smart. Good. Yeah, that was that's great. how often you get screeners. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I think that maybe Roman is, like, Geez, this is actually a lot more work than I thought it was, yeah. and I don't feel that ready for it. And I think Kendall should be feeling that, but he's feeling the opposite, mm-hmm. where he's like, I got this, like, I'm on top. I, I think he does. There, I think there is a fear. His yeah. eyes are, like, scared, but scared. they're also kind of power mad. And I think the schism is not going to be between two siblings against one. They're all going to three go on their own weird. I mean, Because Roman no did. one actually wanted this no. for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because Roman, actually, he sort of begins at at least breaking with Kendall because Kendall was not going to tell Matson. He revealed the plan to Matson. Yeah. And we and I think I don't want to go too galaxy brain. I think we have to take what we get from the show and take it at face value that Kendall and Roman really did want to run the company. Yeah. And this isn't some like master master thing to get a higher deal that they really wanted to tank the deal. Oh yeah, no, I do I think so. And Roman by being too emotional and too much of a daddy's boy and grieving too much and too publicly in front of Madsen, who is completely, un- everything he said was correct. Roman didn't really lie at all in his big breakdown speech, but he ultimately shot himself in the foot. But like probably if the sale were to go through, it's the best thing for them. Yeah. You know, I think that like Kendall saying to Shiv, you know, we've been doing pretty well so far. And she's like, after 24 hours, <laughs> yeah. like you've done it a day. Like, but- I think th- ultimately the best thing for them is not to run this company, but they think they want to. Yeah, but now it's like they don't even have anything, like at least before the dad's deal. And that was another thing. Like Roman was so attached to dad's deal because it was his dad's deal and, you know, keeping his legacy alive and whatnot. When it's like dad's dead. So it's like, who cares if it was his deal, right? If this is a better deal, then take the better deal. But I do think it's interesting that like the way that this is shaking out, they're going to be left with absolutely nothing except billions of dollars, but nothing concrete to run or... There's no empire to run if they sell ATN along with everything else. Right. What are they left with? And I guess that brings back Pierce, but people haven't really been talking about Pierce. And I don't think they don't want that either. That was just to screw their dad because he was trying to buy it, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the tragedy of these kids in this episode and, and probably as the season goes is that, like, they're just – at least Kendall and Roman are just ill-equipped to do the thing they think sh- they should do. Yeah. And – Roman is getting way too emotional about what dad wanted with the cable network, which is evil. And they're mm-hmm. liaising with the arch conservative presidential candidate. We yeah, find who's out. secretly listening to editorial meetings, which yeah. boring for him, but also like that's evil and bad. But like much in the same way that Trump had a direct line to Fox News. Exactly. Uh, probably still does to some extent. And so that's Roman's downfall is that he's too emotional. And Kendall's is that he is completely oblivious, at least in like the top two thirds of his consciousness, completely oblivious to his inadequacies. Yeah. 
And I think a, the, the the darker third, the lower third, where that's where all his pain comes from, mm-hmm. I think there is probably a little voice being like, you don't have this. Yeah. This is not good. <laughs> and you can see it in his face during his negoci- negotiations where, you know, he just doesn't know how to get around Manson. He cannot figure out a strategic way to interact with this guy. Yeah. Logan probably just would have bulldozed over him 100%. and played the seniority game and whatever. And do you know where it really came clear to me or where it was really clear that Kendall doesn't have it. Uh, he tries to tell Lucas to fuck off at one point. Sure. Right, maybe, maybe you guys haven't done this before, but how it usually works is I say something and then you say something. Because if you don't say anything, Can I interrupt things you? tend to get congealed. Fuck off? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the pro tip. That's a textbook Logan thing, but he can't say it with a conviction. He no. can't. He doesn't have it. It's so, it pales in comparison. And I thought it was so interesting. Roman also says fuck off at another point um, this episode in a way that's sort of reminiscent of their dad. But he says it in a sort of Roman jokey way. But Kendall really tried to tell Lucas to fuck off mm-hmm. when he was making fun of him when they were in that skybox. And it's just not there. He right. just doesn't. It felt hollow and it felt forced. And it felt like this is what my dad would do. And it did not land and it didn't work. And I do think that's kind of the tragedy of the series. I think you've really pointed it out. Or one of the tragedies is that despite his best intentions, if you can call it that, Kendall just will never live up to the Titanic evil mastermind of his of Logan. And why should he try? I well, mean, I think that you, the first the episode of this season, you hear Roman saying, shouldn't we just be buying jet skis and sushi? Couldn't we just get off the wheel? And Kendall says in this episode, we're already rich. Yeah. But they're just so still under the spell of their father in his shadow, vainly trying to build themselves up to sort of reflect him. And this episode, I just kind of started to think that the end of this show is going to be sad or, or yeah. kind of bleak. Bleaker than Connor winning the presidency? That's bleak for America. <laughs> but I, I just, I can't see this, based on like how the characters, these three core Roy kids are developing, maybe Shiv will be okay, but I think she could also blunder into something bad. But I, I, I just think Kendall specifically is headed toward like ruin. Complete ruin. And we should yeah. remember we have brought this up already once. He did kill a guy. <laughs> like we, he did. He does yeah. have sins to atone for that yeah. have not really been reckoned with. And yeah. I sort of was thinking about that. Who is worse, Lucas or Kendall? I don't know. Not That's not really a, a question that one can answer. But it would make sense if things didn't really go his way yeah. by his series end. Yeah. I do think we should bring up, speaking of people getting off the hamster wheel, mm-hmm. some people are getting chopped off the hamster wheel, yeah. even if they don't want to be, yeah. given the kill list that drops in the last five minutes of the episode. All the guys who were worried. Yeah. <laughs> they, all their fears were Two of were them who I did lit. not remember at all. Who are the sweater men? They've, <laughs> like, popped in and out. They're, they've been around. Mark and somebody. I was Mark like, and somebody. You know, obviously Carl and Frank. And they keep referring to Carl's big golden parachute yeah. and all that stuff. Those guys will be okay. Carl was uh, happy happy as a clam to get uh, severance and to get kicked out. Hugo's panicked. But my question for all those guys was like, good. Yeah. Take the payout. Go live on your Greek island, Carl, that you're buying with your brother-in-law. <laughs> like, who cares? But but again, these it's not just about It's not just money. about money. No, yeah. it's about, and I will say for those men, it's about masculinity. It's about winning. Yeah. Think about how they were so threatened by the fact that Matson's NASDAQ master race, which Carolina said, of just like young, Swedish, big, hunky, you know, former Olympians (laughs) working for his company, they were threatened by that because that means that they're becoming irrelevant and inert and their dicks probably don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. That's all in the ethos. And so them getting fired or getting cut out of 
the transition, the merger, right. just proves all that to be true, which if they had any sort of sense of self or if they went to therapy, they'd know that none of that matters. They're rich. They could be happy if they wanted to be. But it's, I think it, I guess I'm just going back to this toxic masculinity thing, but I do think that's at the heart of why, you know, so many of them are so pissed when they are like, oh, you're going to get like millions of dollars, but you won't right. get to work at the new version of Waystar Royco. Right. I guess my question to them would be, which toilet would you rather die in? <laughs> the business jet going to Sweden for work thing or like, I don't know, on a Greek island that, that you own. <laughs> you know, I I would choose the latter. I think I would too. If we were all going to die in the toilet eventually, like, you know, might as well do it on your own terms. Um, but yeah, the masculinity thing also is funny because Carolina, Jerry are safe. And yeah, because and, Shiv said so, basically. Yeah. And Tom is safe. And I wonder if maybe Matson would want to keep Tom around because he thinks that that would bring Shiv around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, honestly, I think that's a very smart read because I was wondering, it's like, why? Like, there's no way that Tom impressed him during that awful Or maybe it's a court jester. He wants a court jester. I think he might want a court jester. And yeah. Tom and Greg, I think he just forgot about Greg. Greg's name wasn't on it. I think he could just want to have him around as like an American punching bag and a lackey and someone who will do his bidding. But interestingly enough, and I guess sort of to round out the conversation, we begin with Shiv, we end with Shiv. It was interesting that what Shiv had the chance to sort of chop Tom's balls off. And instead of doing that, she's like, let's fire Sid and let's go out to dinner. You know, Shiv does have a sociopathic streak in her, <laughs> like her family. And I couldn't quite tell if that was her continuing to play with him, being a little turned on mm -hmm. by her quiet victory you yes. know um again i don't know how aware she was of her brother's trying to tank it but i think she knows that she got in matson's ear yeah which in a way her brothers couldn't oh yeah i think another question is you know if shiv is having this baby uh tom is presumably the father and presumably. so she wants to keep him around and maybe try to rekindle something with him at least in a friendly sense yeah but all i know is if she has that baby, keep it as far away from that blood weird Viking guy as <laughs> much as she can. It away from yeah. Lucas, please. Yeah. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with J. Smith Cameron. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So it's not too long ago that I picked my girl, Jerry, to come out on top at the end of the series. And thankfully, she lived to fight another week along with Carolina this episode. Yeah, in a cast really stacked with talent, Jay Smith Cameron maybe deserves some special acclaim Absolutely. Uh, for playing Jerry, um, you know, who's the interim CEO. She can dance through a rainstorm without getting anybody wet. 
she's also kind of been Roman Roy's love interest in the past. Uh, it's just one of the show's great characters, and we're so happy to have uh, Jay Smith Cameron on to talk to us about Jerry. This is yet another episode where our beloved Jerry, she just, she's a survivor. She comes <laughs> out on top. She really does. How do you think Jerry manages to keep herself off that kill list? Well, it's very interesting that you asked me that because I asked the writers the same question, really. I don't have an opportunity to distinguish myself. And there there was quite a lot of this episode that didn't make it in the final cut. Like, I think it was maybe a long script and then was also got longer in shooting. And I don't want to speak out of turn because I'm not the editor and I'm not Jesse and I'm not Andre who directed it. But there was a whole Hunger Games aspect to the executives trying to keep their spot. Oh, wow. So they all had to do, they were supposed to have, you know, be competing against the Swedes who were athletic and savvy about everything. And they had like um, Hugo and Ray and Mark, those characters all had to Ford streams and I don't know, <laughs> you know, hang glide. I don't know what they're, they're, you know, all kinds of things that were like to see who could survive. And um, we just didn't really see Jerry doing anything to prove herself, I thought. So I lobbied several things. I was like, one of the things they were supposed to do that you don't see in the current episode is they were foraging for mushrooms. But the Swedes kind of said, but, you know, some of them are poisonous. So and we didn't know if they were kidding or not, you know, and uh, Jerry wasn't yeah. supposed to forage. And I was like, maybe you could see Jerry foraging. And she, just while the, her Swedish counterpart isn't looking, she just swishes baskets <laughs> just to make, <laughs> just to make sure. No, that we didn't, they didn't do that. Then there was a scene where all the guys were in the sauna or sauna, as we say it, sauna, as they say it mm-hmm. with their Swedish counterparts. And it was this like proof of, you know, who could stick out the heat, obviously, who could take it. And um, so, you know, the idea is that Hugo and and Mark and uh, Ray, those characters are all dying, uh, ready to pass out, but trying not to leave. And, you know, the first one to leave gets cut kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I said, what maybe Jerry could be in the sauna with them, even though it's all guys. And they thought that idea was funny. And so I was in there and they gave me some nice lines and yeah. And I was like, at one point, Jesse said, why don't you say, Hey, it's getting a little cool in here. Can't you turn it up? (laughs) And And everybody laughed and I was like, Oh, it's going to be a great scene. And now we're just an out of focus shot where, um, Carl and Frank are sitting out on deck, not having to put themselves through that, enjoying a whiskey in their bathrobes. I mean, poor bastards. You can't even tell Jerry's in there. It's sad. (laughs) And they refer to you all as peeking ducks hanging out. Peeking in the ducks, right, which is very apt, actually. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Carl and Frank, ultimately, they don't make it. You know, they're on that kill list, and Jerry is not. So it's great that you were <laughs> in the sauna. But watching it, I realized uh, in the scene with Shiv and Matson, she brings up Carolina being good, and then he asks about Jerry. They say she's very good. And so I think mm-hmm. that's why we're not cut, is because he's so entranced. He's so, like, you know, struck by Shiv. And that's so interesting. Like, what is it? What's going on with his brain about Shiv? And that, that whole conversation about the blood bricks and everything. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. I, for one, am not surprised that Jerry, you know, comes out on top. Because at the beginning of this podcast, I said that 
Jerry would take over the Waystar Roy Co. throne. So I've been rooting for you the entire time. Yeah. And it looked a little dicey. It looked a little dicey, um, you know, in episode three on the boat, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> with your conversation with Roman. So could you talk to me about sort of Jerry's arc this season in terms of how, it, you know, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for her? Yes, I would say it keeps on being a roller coaster um, in, a, in, a, in a cool, hopefully cool, exciting way. Um, I can't say too much because, you know, but I will just say that um, she is still keeping somehow, I don't, you know, she has no firm ground to stand on. She's like between who is really running the store? No one really knows. Mm. And so she's kind of taking advantage of like lingering because she knows her expertise is going to be needed at some point. Her mm. boss dropped dead. And those two idiot boys, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Jerry would think they're idiot boys. I don't think they're, yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, Absolutely. You know, Roman knows that he, Logan wanted her fired, but you can see that that's a very tangled up, conflicted, you know, he's mad at Jerry. Jerry's mad at him. Logan turned on Jerry. He got mad at Logan. Then Logan died. Now he feels guilty. And, mm. you know, he's very, he's trying to, he's like, we should hang on to age ATM because that was pop's wishes. And even though, you know, the phone call in three that he, the, the message he leaves for his dad is like, I don't like that you had me do that. That was really shitty. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're a cunt. I think you're a cunt. And he kind of tells mm. his dad off for like the first time. And then his dad dies and he doesn't know whether he had heard them. Everybody's in this horrible, ambiguous grief mode. He was the last one to believe that he was re actually really dead, remember? Right, <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah, talking right. more about Roman than Jerry, but yeah. they're so intertwined <laughs> that, you know. They are. They, yeah. are. they really are. So, I mean, their fate in the in the company, and he may think that he's in charge of Jerry's fate, but Jerry really in her heart, I think, thinks if he'd only played his cards right, mm. she could have got them together right. to the very top. And um, that's yeah. still lingering, I think, in her brain. To get as far as Jerry has in her career, to have lasted as long as she has, one would have to be, I think, pretty ruthless for a long, a sustained period of time. I'm curious what you think, Jay. Like, where do you kind of place Jerry on the sort of moral map of these characters? Like, is she among the worst? Is she one of the better ones? How do you view her in, in that sense? I think that she is a pragmatic look after yourself, don't worry about other people kind of person. But I had this thought before that I think she seems maybe slightly to have a moral edge on on most of them because I think she does believe in the letter of the law and she believes in the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And that's something. There's some conscientious principle. principle. Yeah, there's some principled thought behind that, I think. Do you know? Like, yeah. And then the fact that she she may find what she's representing in a court of law uh, reprehensible, yet it's her job in a kind of mercenary way to get them off and uh, or to get them through or get them, you know what I mean? And so I think it's so interesting now that the Dominion voting system Fox News trial didn't happen at the last minute, very succession e mm, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, really. uh, somebody asked me on to Michael Mephesloss asked posed a question to me on Twitter, like Jerry danced them through a thunderstorm without them getting wet, yet Ro Logan wasn't happy. What do you say, Jason Cameron? <laughs> and I was just like, well, I would say Rupert has a Jerry working for him that at the 11th mm. hour he listened to because they're paying a lot of money, but 
it's just an interesting thing about legal system in our country is that whoever gets the money actually wins the point, you know, but it's not a moral, it doesn't feel like justice or something, you know? So I mm-hmm. guess, you know, I've been reading opinion pieces that it's like, well, so what the cat's out of the bag that they had fake news. I'm like, but their audience doesn't read the New York times opinion page, no, you know? No. So it's like, this is just very succession-y. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that would have gotten to the viewers was on-air apologies, which they now don't have to do. Exactly. And so they, they just dodged yet another bullet. I mean, 800 but, you know, billion. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Whatever it was, but <laughs> it's very succession. But see, right. this is the kind of thing that if it was Logan, he'd be then mad that he's spending the money that he should have right. nothing to apologize for in the first place. And right. I, I also always had a theory about Logan that as soon as he had appointed anyone to any degree of status, whether it be a, a offspring or wife, a girlfriend, um, a employee, you know, the minute that person has some status, he begins to like them less. Mm. Like if you look back over the history of which son he's favoring when, or, or when Shiv, when he was like, Shiv, I think it's going to be you. And then she starts kind of flexing a little bit and he's like really put off and really slaps her right down, you know? And I feel mm-hmm. like early in the second season when he's like, well, it name an interim CEO. It could be someone like Jerry. It won't be Jerry, but it could be like, you know, and that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that the minute Jerry seemed like the natural surrogate or next in line, I felt like he began to treat me less like, because in season one, he was like, get me Jerry, get me Jerry, you know? And he still, he still went on doing that, but I felt less trusted by him right away. Like Mm. I could feel it as an actor. I could just feel a colder, a a more of a disconnect from Logan. And it happened to coincide with the unwanted advances of his son. And the the combination was almost deadly for Jerry. I know that Jesse considered Jerry getting fired by Logan, really? like really fired. Wow. And I think the writing staff stood up for me like, no, we need Jerry. <laughs> but I'm not sure what happened. So again, I shouldn't be flapping my mouth about that. But Well, there would have been fan revolt. I know that. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> listen, I thought fan, the fans would revolt when they announced that this was the final season. And I know there are people disappointed, but everyone's like, yeah, this is great. This is, and I, I have to say, like, as I watch, I'm like, the way this season is written, it's so intense. There's so much, it's given some kind of open barn door to all three of those kids' ids. Like they're just really plotting against each other and really paranoid and really cloak and daggers psychologically yeah. right now, more than ever. Mm-hmm. Like they used to kind of team up against dad together. Right. And mm-hmm. that's now slipping away. And then, you know, I, so I'm finding the episodes fascinating because even though I read the scripts, if they write alternatives that they shoot while they're, while we're there filming, also they sometimes use improvs and then it goes through editing. So you don't really know what the final storytelling is until you see it on TV yourself. And so wow. I have revelations about it all the time. This season more so than ever feels like we're watching like a series of one-act plays and there feels like a, such a strong tie to the theater scene. And there are so many New York theater actors and you're, you know, a, a seminal stage actor yourself. Um, did it feel like you, uh, theater at all this season more so than other seasons? Yeah, I mean, you know, good writing is good writing. And so... I feel like that's the thing that most affects one's acting, not the style of it or the venue, but I know what you're talking about. Like, first of all, one thing that's usually true about 
film or television versus the stage is that there's just much more talking on stage. It's like that's the mm-hmm. that's the real thing is what do they say? What's the language? What do they say? They they make arguments or they tell stories and that's the action of the play usually. Mm-hmm. It's not so visual, it's it's not as visual. But this is a little bit like that because the language is that humor and that sort of what I think of as succession speak, like the mm-hmm. kind of way everybody has the same sort of weird, slightly vulgar, sort of British, sort of American turn of phrase, these made up business expressions and sprinkled in with real business, ex- you know, jargon. And I found those lines really hard to learn a lot because they were oh, really? yeah, kind of long run on sentences and sometimes would change tense in the middle and punctuation would be put in an odd spot maybe, or because it was sort of messy on purpose, the way people are when they're thinking on their feet, like, you you know, you might be halfway through a sentence and you slightly change direction or you, they had a really good ear for that kind of dialogue. And it helped to be a theater actor in that sense, because you're kind of used to having to be as deft as possible with language. And I think that really everyone in the cast did have all the New Yorkers were theater actors mm-hmm. and uh, the Brits too. Chris yeah. and I are both theater people. So we, we oh, especially good. appreciate, I think, <clears throat> Succession having that that sort of mm. vibe. I mean, it really is an amazing crew. Obviously, the writing is so sharp and exciting. Everything that you said is so true. And like every episode is a mammoth undertaking. And yet the attention to detail on the show is so unbelievable. One of my favorite details from uh, this season is Jerry's hat at the wedding. <laughs> what did you think uh, about your... An your instantly iconic chapeau. Absolutely fascinator meets Kentucky Derby. We're obsessed. <laughs> well, um, no, our Pat Capone, who was uh, the DP for that episode, had thought we would be out in the glaring sun on certain parts of that boat. And mm. he just thought that... The ladies, some of the ladies might want a brim because like like in Tuscany, we found we all really needed that for lighting reasons, like to kind of buffer or diffuse. And um, so I spoke up about it to Michelle Matlin. And then I thought, too, she's on such sketchy, even though she doesn't know what's, she doesn't expect anything that dramatic to happen that day. Mm-hmm. At, at, yeah. About getting fired. But I think she can feel the frostiness from Logan. Totally. And Roman. And and so I think, you know, I come with this really handsome date and I've got this very (laughs) chic designer ensemble on. And I think a hat is sort of subliminally a kind of a statusy thing for a woman Mm -hmm. these days to wear, used to be. But I I thought of it as just sort of like a little bit of like, I'm going to show up like in my finest (laughs) <laughs> and bluff this out. You know, I'm just going to be like completely, you know, at the end of that scene, I'm like, this is nothing. This is fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that brim is like that to me. Like it's, but it's so funny because it was just, it was, it was sort of started with a lighting idea that Pat had. Yeah. yeah it, it's just such a, it's a fun thing to think about Jerry picking that outfit and like, it just, you know, a little glimpse into like the outside of work, Jerry, you know, yeah, uh, which is I so know. fun. Cause she's such a, such a beautifully realized character um, by you, Jay. And um, to well, that end, you. we're so glad that you were able to come on and speak to us about it. And yeah. um, can, you My know, pleasure. It's, it's been great watching you. So yeah. thanks thank for doing you it. so much. <laughs>
Thank you. Yeah. Still rooting for you. I still think you're going to take it. Yeah. I really do. I think it's Jerry's Jerry's throne. Fingers crossed. Fingers we crossed. We think Connor's going to be president and Jerry will be <laughs> head, of the head of the company. Well, of, you know, head of he could at least be governor of Florida, couldn't he? <laughs> uh, he already is, I thought. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, um, Jay, thank you again. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, your theories on where the show is headed. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. So, Chris, I think it's time to turn to our emails, which were sent to us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can be like these people. You can send us what you want. <laughs> Please do. What stood out to you this week in the mailbag? Yes. So last week, we spoke a lot about Shiv's pregnancy. That was the big reveal of the episode. But we did. I also got a text from my mom Ooh. to this effect. I'm not going to read it, but just talking about something we sort of didn't think about when discussing her pregnancy A hundred percent. Yeah, so thank you, Perry, for emailing in and said, in an interview with Kara Swisher, Sarah Snook confirmed that Shiv was almost hoping for a different result so that she wouldn't have to grapple with deeper reasons to terminate the pregnancy if that's what she decides. We know that Shiv is close to 20 weeks, and even with the dismantling of Roe, abortion is legal in New York up to 24 weeks. If season four ends within the next couple of weeks in succession time, maybe we'll see what she chooses. And, you know, obviously that is... Uh, possibility, at least Mm -hmm. in New York State at the moment. And yeah, I could see her making that decision for a variety of reasons. She was, for the most part, it seemed like being careful about substances. So that would suggest, you know, some part of her mind's not made up yet. Or maybe she just didn't want to do cocaine with the Blood Viking. <laughs> True. Which also fair, fair enough. I mean, I probably would have, but yeah. you know, whatever. Sounds like a party. Did you see those abs? Yeah. Uh, um, but yes, thank you for pointing that out. Do we have any other emails from yeah. last week? Oh, this is one that goes sort of back to the board seats from Kristen. In season one, episode one, Logan's proposing to update the trust to give his board seat to Marsha with double voting powers in the unlikely event of his death. I believe the trust was updated again later in season three, but it's an interesting point. We don't know how much power Marsha right. has in terms of board seats and whatnot. She doesn't have kilt power. <laughs> yeah. That we know. Of. My guess is the funeral's next episode. Yeah. Right? Timeline-wise. But I'm glad that we're not going to be done with Marsha. And yes. that's a good thing to point out, that she, before Logan's death, in the years before Logan's death, she had ensconced herself very well. Yes. She was very much in her sanctum. Yeah. Seeing her, it makes sense that Connor had to call his siblings at the most inopportune times to get carte blanche to sort of do the funeral his way. But that doesn't transfer to literal board seats. It doesn't transfer to the company. No, it does Um, not. And so we got another email from 
Audrey, which did note that many of the episode titles this season have been referring to Connor and Willow. We had honeymoon states. So maybe Connor and Willow, or Connor at least, might be more of a factor into where the season heads than we might have. Uh, my guess is that, well, because with the election coming up, the funeral, I think that he's probably going to have more moments. I also think that the little groundwork of seeing Willow with her mom, Sylvia, saying mm-hmm. he'll take care of you, then touring around the apartment and that's first lady shit. That is. That's how it's going to end. It's going to be like, wow, you got all the way from the Stan Flea play <laughs> to whatever was before to this in the fucking White House. If I get, well, that actually. OK, so this actually brings us. To... I hope the last shot of the series is Sylvia. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason. Put that on yeah. the record. So, I mean, this brings us to sort of our weekly question. Who do you think won? Who do you think lost this episode? And who do you think is it primed to win the whole thing by the end? Well, I think we both agree Shiv won the episode. Yes, Shiv definitely, finally, my girl, she comes through. And it's not just because of our guest, but I think think there might be a couple winners at the end of the Mm -hmm. series. Jerry just keeps on turning up. Like, you know, she just keeps on eking it out. Yeah. And what really, she really does. And she seems so calm and cool and collected and not even worried. Not on the plane there, not on the plane back. She is calm as a cucumber. And we rarely see her flustered. We did at the wedding because she was getting almost fired. But then it all worked out. I'm going to have to agree. I'm going to say Shiv did win. I honestly think Kendall and Roman were the big losers of this episode. And I think given what you said about Kendall's arc, I think he might be the big loser of the series by yeah. I'm, the end. I feel like Connor's fucking inauguration speech or his victory speech is playing on the TV while Kendall is in some like nice enough office trying to plan his next thing, his next startup. <laughs> his next and that's falter. the last we see of him. And like he's just like still at the grind, but And I will base, say so no. maybe it's that, but instead of an office, it's a prison because he goes to oh, well, <laughs> he goes to jail for the cater waiter murder. And Hugo and his daughter are still <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. They're, they're all together. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, yeah that's Club what fed, it, yeah. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Still Watching. Please send us your questions, concerns, feelings of injustice, any theories at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Kevin Barasa. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode six. Looking forward to seeing you then. The quad? Yeah, the, the quad squad. The, the Roy Patrol, the, the old team, the, the, the family. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.